our look and study into the attributes of God, um, we're, we're going to once again try to, it's almost like we're, we're taking a microscope or we're just going to kind of narrow down and look at this one attribute of God, which is a very difficult thing to do as we've seen because it's connected to every attribute of God because God is God all the time and every attribute of God is actually operating all the time. And, uh, and so it's very difficult sometimes to pull that apart. But as we talk about God's attribute of, of graciousness tonight, that God is gracious, or God is a God of grace, or God's grace, um, this, the best analogy I can give you as I have looked at this more and more is I don't know how many of you ever make your way into art museums, and maybe some high-end art museums, where there's some really uh, significant paintings by uh, painters, uh, whether it's Michelangelo or Picasso or whomever, and you, and you look at it and, and you really don't know anything about it because you didn't do your homework. And you say, that's a nice picture, but then somebody tells you a little bit about it and the history behind it, and then you look at it some more, and then you find that you can spend, and you'll see people that will come sit and look at paintings hours upon hours upon hours and still only get a little bit of what's there and really looking at God's grace I don't want to just dull your expectations tonight but uh, as we look at God's grace uh, we're just going to we're just going to look at this for a moment but we're not going to get there tonight this is actually a lifetime pursuit uh, and the scripture that we'll look at tonight and, and people's viewpoints on, on grace will just be a snapshot, uh, and it will take each of us a lifetime, and we still won't be there to really grasp God's grace. And so I've got a couple of things that I hope tonight, uh, that I hope we get out of tonight. Uh, one is that it's a personal thing for you, is that when we're done tonight, that you, uh, that, that God's grace would be even more amazing to you at the personal level. So, so that's one of the things I hope for tonight. The second is I really hope that tonight will just cause you to pause for a moment and maybe think a little bit differently about grace than you've ever thought about it before. And you know what? Anytime we go into a study of anything about God, we normally come away thinking a little bit differently than we, than we went into it with because he's just that big and, and, and there's just, he's just so vast. So let me just pray for us before we get going. Father God, I am certainly unable to do this task tonight to communicate, Lord, just the greatness of your grace. And Lord, so I stand here and ask you tonight, Lord, would you do in me what I cannot do? Lord, would you speak through me, Lord, just to bless your people, to pour out your grace on this group that's here tonight? And Lord, I pray that we would come away from tonight, change forever, once again, little by little bit, from glory to glory, and be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you look at the first page here, uh, we start out with this, uh, this, this quote, and it says, God's saving grace has always only flowed through Jesus Christ. From eternity past to the fall to Noah, to you and me, and to eternity future. And you know, just like God's mercy 
in other aspects of God's attributes. There is no God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. And what we're going to what we're going to prove tonight is that people have always been saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is from eternity past for every single person that ever has been saved. And we're going to see that tonight. 2 Timothy 1, 9 shows us this. It says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling? Not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose. And grace which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So now that's a very personal verse for you. And what it says is this, is God's grace which came to you. Those of you who are believers, who have believed as we've been studying in John, that Jesus is the Christ and by believing you have life in his name. If that's the case with you, that grace which came to you was planned from eternity past in Christ. So just let that sink in for a minute. So as, as we have done uh, in the past, what, let's start off by looking at what some different folks uh, have said about grace. And I don't attribute these first two because they're just so common. Uh, people have used the acrostic, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's actually a good way to think about grace. Uh, if, it, if you're that kind of person that, that needs uh, to, to be able to, to have an acrostic, uh, God's unmerited favor is probably one of the most common ways that people define grace. In other words, God's favor on you, his saving favor on you for something you did not deserve. But uh, uh, just some thoughts from some different folks here. One from, uh, or several from John M. Frame. And instead of just giving you single definitions, I've kind of had some thoughts that, that these folks have and, and are going to kind of flesh them out a little bit, but... In the doctrine of God, he writes this, Grace in Scripture refers to God's benevolence, as do goodness and love, but with different perspectives and nuances. And this flows from God's goodness, as does mercy and love. So there's the connected, grace is, is connected with God's goodness, just like mercy is, just like we talked about then. So, so all the blessings of God come to us by God's sovereign grace. Without his grace, we are nothing. By grace comes the forgiveness of our sins, the power to do good works, and the ability to serve the people of God. He goes on to say, When God shows favor, since man has fallen and cursed, any favor shown by God to man is surprising. And you know, this goes against actually what, what most people, well, I won't say most people, but many people think somehow we are deserving as a human race. We didn't get ourselves into this mess, right? And so God kind of owes us something but the truth is, is that we really, God wants us to be in the place where we're actually surprised that he pours out his grace on us. And we're going to see this at the very end when, right before we go into our question time, just some things that I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you to think about, and, and one will be in light of that. He goes on to say God's grace to men then appears in spite of man's unrighteousness and by God's utterly sovereign decision. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It is a legitimate, therefore to define God's grace theologically as sovereign, unmerited favor given to those who deserve his wrath. We can also see from these references that God's grace, like his love, is covenantal. It's implicit in the covenant name of God. And, and Yahweh initiates the covenant by choosing undeserving people to bear his name. And some of these are very common people. Noah, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Israel as a nation. And that really that is grace. God's covenant with these people in the nation of Israel. So grace, therefore, is utterly personal. It's the Lord's own attitude of favor towards his people. And we're talking here about a saving grace. We're going to talk a little bit later about a grace that's common to all. But now we're talking about a saving grace. And his saving grace is only for his people. Arthur W. Pink in The Attributes of God says this, Grace is the sole source from which flows the goodwill, love, and salvation of God to his chosen people. And that divine grace is the sovereign and saving favor of God exercised in the bestowment of blessings upon those who have no merit and in them, in them, and for which no compensation is demanded from them. So it's not only God giving favor and blessing uh, and kindness to people who don't deserve it. It's actually people um, who have to pay nothing for it. it. It is free. It is a free gift of God. And grace can neither be bought, earned, nor won by the creature. If it could be, it would cease to be grace. A.W. Tozier, which I know all of you, many are familiar with, says grace flows from God's goodness, and, and we've already seen that. Mercy, however, is God's goodness confronting human guilt, whereas grace is God's goodness confronting human demerit. The goodness of God yearns to bestow blessedness even to those who do not deserve it, but who have a special or a specific demerit. And that blessedness is grace. Grace is that which brings into favor one who is justly in disfavor. So the interesting part is God pours out his kindness, his blessing, his salvation, not only just on a neutral people, but a people who are actually his enemies. A G.S. Bishop, and this is a, this is a sobering quote, grace is a provision for men who are so fallen that they cannot lift the axe of justice and so corrupt that they cannot change their own natures, so averse to God that they cannot turn to him, so blind that they cannot see him, so deaf that they cannot hear him, and so dead that he himself must open their graves and lift them into resurrection. And what I would say about this is this addresses something that, in some respects, the grace of God, how you look at the grace of God, really depends a lot on how you see yourself in God's eyes. And if you see yourself as being a pretty good person, a good person even, uh, and I'm talking about your natural self, then maybe his grace isn't so great after all. It's just, it's good. But if you really look at how the scriptures describe us as humanity, and then you see how he lavishes his grace upon us, you're just in wonder. And that's where he wants us to be. Um, so, and, and this, is, this is my definition coming up here. Always like Grady does, you know, at the end tries to synthesize all of this. And so, I've basically said God's attribute of being disposed to and leaning towards blessing and kindness. Not because it's deserved or earned but because it's God just being God. And part of that comes from, and I didn't spend a whole lot of time and I wasn't going to do it with you, is just go over what the, what the actual words were in the Hebrew and the Greek. And really, they, in the Hebrew and Greek, they mean the same thing. And really, there's this concept of the word charis in the New Testament and kanan in the Old Testament. 
And really what it means is God's leaning towards you and I in his, with his benevolence. He's actually leaning towards us. He's disposed to us. It's actually a part of his character to show benevolence, to show kindness. That, that's who God is uh, by his very nature, thus an attribute of God. And just kind of a side note, we've gone over this in our Sunday school class. When, when the Bible tells us to rejoice always, again, I will say rejoice. And Paul says it, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Well, that is, grace and rejoice are connected. In fact, they come from the same Greek root, care, which actually means to lean into. And, and grace is God leaning to you and I with his benevolence. What joy is, is really us leaning into God's grace. That's what it is. Is us being conscious of God's grace. That's what joy is. So joy is inextricably linked to grace. Because if you ever ask yourself, how can I rejoice always? How in the world? Because you see God's grace in everything. And guess what that's connected to? It's connected to his sovereignty. And when you put all of these together, you see a God who is always for you. Always for you if you follow him. So, let's start uh, taking a little bit of a, a rundown through scripture here. Now that we've looked at how some people have defined grace. So, God's grace to people in his scripture. We'll look at some Old Testament, then New Testament. And we'll start with Noah. And in Genesis 6, 5, and 8, it said, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, first of all, Noah wasn't perfect, as we can see. Everybody on the earth was wicked. But there was some righteousness in Noah. God saw some, some goodness in Noah. But guess what? You know what God's grace doesn't do? It doesn't grade on a curve. Noah didn't get God's grace because he just happened to be the best guy around. And that's not how it works for you and I either. Um, the other thing is Hebrews 11.8. I didn't put it here. But what it tells us is that Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith, because Noah believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So do you see this? That Noah was saved by grace through faith, not of himself. It was a gift of God, not as a result of anything he did, so that he could never boast. Literally, God, by his choice, put his favor on Noah. He chose Noah for no other reason than his, that he is God. I can't, we can't find another reason why he chose Noah. Let's go on. Jacob. Um, this may not be the best example, but Romans 9, 11 through 12 is talking about Jacob and Esau, and it says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. The truth about Jacob is he was actually a schemer. He wasn't this just great character. Remember, he, he, he lied, he deceived his father. Um, but guess what? God poured out his favor, his blessing, his kindness, his benevolence on Jacob. Why? Because he's God. Moses, let's look at Exodus 33, 17 through 19. The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing of which you've spoken, for you have found favor in my sight. 
and I've known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. This is when Noah was asking the Lord about, Lord, if I'm going to go and deliver your people, you've got to go with me. You said you would go. If you don't go with me, how will they know that I'm here in your name? And, and how will we do this thing, Lord? You've said I have your favor. Do I really have your favor? And the Lord says, yes, you do, Moses. That you have, that, that, that my graciousness is on you. And Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and I love this passage. And I would encourage you to either memorize it or just go there a lot. It says this, then the Lord, and this is when Moses was asking the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Don't you just love that? But it doesn't stop there, does it? It says, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. You see his other attributes working perfectly in harmony. Holiness, you see, justice, working perfectly in harmony with his grace. He is a gracious God. He's a just God. He's a holy God. And, and when you look at this passage, what you see is that both of these things, which seem really awkward, I'm gracious, but I'm not going to leave the guilty unpunished, and where do we find that those two meet? At the cross, right? Isn't that amazing? That's where his grace and his justice meet. Number 6, 23 through 27. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord makes his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. Grace, God's favor, is actually uh, connected with his name being on the nation. It's also connected with his name being on you. His name being on you. In Isaiah 30, 18 and 19, this is true for you and I, and it's such a great passage. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. O people in Zion, inhabit in Jerusalem. You will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And I wish I had so much more time than this next verse in the Psalms. just talks about that God wants us to cry out to him. He says, cry out to me and I'll be gracious to you. The promises in the Psalms over and over and over. Psalm 119.58, just one. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. We want to ask God to be kind to us and benevolent to us. Not because we're hoping. We know that that's, that's the God that he is. And as his believers, we know that his grace is upon us. And sometimes when we're struggling or we're walking through things, we just really need to cry out to God and ask him. And he will meet us with his grace. And when we get over to the New Testament, what's interesting is, is 
is, is uh, this word grace or charis. It actually appears very few times in the Gospels. It's more in the epistles than anything else. And uh, John, However, John does emphasize uh, grace here, particularly in the first, uh, first chapter where he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we see there is Christ himself was God's grace extended to us. It was his favor, it was his benevolence, it was his kindness extended to you and I. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received. And as Grady has become famous for, and grace upon grace. I love that, grace upon grace. The waves of grace that just keep, keep coming in Christ. You know, and as a believer, we just need, that needs to be something that's in our hearts and on our lips at all times. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Don't let that be a stumbling block. There, is no, there isn't a section of the law where there was no grace. And then all of a sudden grace showed up on the scene. Because remember we just read in the opening verse here. The grace which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And then we start to move down through Acts. And... Acts 11, 21 through 23, it said, and, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. And here we see uh, there, there's this uh, enabling power of grace an active power of grace uh, in Acts. Uh, actually, did I read Acts 4.33 before that, or did I skip over that? Okay. Well, let, let me go back and read that. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. And it wasn't just God's favor on his people, but it's actually grace, the grace of God being talked about and actually defined as the power of God in you and I that his grace is the power of God in you and I. And then when you go down to the next verse that we just read, we see grace associated with the gospel and salvation uh, when, when uh, the, the Gentiles and Antiochs came to Christ. Acts 13, 43. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, urging them to continue in the grace of God. And here we see the grace of God referring specifically to the gospel. And we move on to uh, Romans. We see where Paul begins to contrast grace with some things. What, what grace is it? And he says, but now apart from the law, so he's actually separating grace out from the law here. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And here we see in that the forgiveness of sin. We see the righteousness of Christ being given to you and I, credited to our account, even though we weren't righteous as a gift of God's grace. 
And then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which I think we're all familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone, or so that no one may boast. We go over to Romans 12, 4 through 6. Another aspect of grace is, is seen uh, in the gifts that God's given to the church. Really, his benevolence and his kindness to us as the body of Christ. And he says, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of another. Since we have gifts, and that word gifts is charisma, which comes from the same root, care, which which uh, connotates uh, gift and, and, and leaning towards with benevolence, that differ according to the grace given to us. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And you know, we just talked about this, I think it was last week, really about how God's given each of us a gift. Each of us, when you became a believer uh, from the Spirit of God, God imparted to you a gift. And God really expects each of us to use our gifts together in the body of Christ. Uh, to bless one another, to edify the body. And that is a grace gift to us. We move down to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And I tell you, I've been leaning on this one a lot lately. Um, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And this was the scenario when Paul, really whatever the thorn in the flesh was for him, had asked the Lord three times, would you please take this from me? And I would imagine it was a pretty severe thing, whatever it was, mental anguish, physical pain, blindness, um, we, don't, we don't know. But he says, please, Lord, take this. And you know what? The Lord didn't take it. So if you think about, if you're in that situation, you know, sometimes... God doesn't ask us to go around it, or he doesn't make it disappear. He actually says we need to endure it. But when he does that, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. It is enough, and it is the power of God. It's not something that's cheap, and it's actually not something that, that you can just kind of willy-nilly. It actually is something you need, you need to plug into the Father's heart, and you need to actually come to Christ and ask for this over and over and over again. Every day it's a battle. But His grace is sufficient. And I think it was when we were doing our Sunday school class this last week, Alicia put it well. He says, you know, God's grace is always on time. It's never late, but it's also never early. It's, it's there. It's that grace ticket for today. And that is just an amazing promise to you and I. And we need to just... Uh, Praise the Lord for that. 2 Corinthians 8 9, and this may be the most important of all. So we close out the scripture section. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. How much God loves you and I, that his gift to us was him taking on flesh, his son, and giving his life for you and I. Benevolence, kindness. And so, the blessings of God, the grace of God comes to us through uh, 
or the blessings of God come to us through God's sovereign grace. Without his grace, we're nothing. But by grace comes forgiveness of our sin, the power to do good works, to overcome and endure trials, and really gifts to serve the body. And those are just some of the aspects of grace. But there is another aspect, and in this term, common grace, it's not really a term normally talked about in Baptist circles. It's more of a Reformed, whether it's Presbyterian, where you talk about common grace. And, and some would even argue, some theologians would argue that it's, it's kind of common grace, but maybe it's not common grace. It's just God's common goodness or common mercy, or you could go through all that. The bottom line is, is we're talking about blessings and His benevolence to everyone, believer, unbeliever, alike. And let's just take a look. John Murray says, uh, Every favor of whatever kind of degree, falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. So what are some of the aspects of common grace? And, And these probably aren't all of them, but here's just a few examples. God gives temporal blessings to all. Okay, just uh, uh, his, his kindness, his gifts, his blessings. Uh, and, and some of those things are just his general provision, as you see in Psalm 145, 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great and loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. And in Matthew 5, 44 through 45, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Well, you know, here we see one example of God's grace flowing to you and I, through you and I. So God's goodness to all of his creation comes through you and I, his grace, as we actually love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Um, and we see also the blessings of, of just rain and sunshine, food, just all of the things that we enjoy. I mean, we kind of talked about this a little bit when we talked about the attribute of goodness, just God's goodness in a sunset and his beautiful creation. If you're a nature lover, you could probably just sit here and talk all day about just how God has been so good and just the amazing beauty that he's given us in nature. Um, we also see uh, civil government that God's put. Now, sometimes you may say, what? That's for our good? But the truth is, absolutely. I think uh, we probably don't understand what it would be like to live uh, where there might be anarchy, chaos. And, and actually, I don't know that we actually understand how fragile governments really, really are, how fragile ruling people are. Unless you go and there's a dictator um, and there's peace, but it's at much suffering. But in a democracy like ours, a democratic republic, I mean, it is a blessing. It's a blessing to live in a democratic republic, and it is a fragile thing. Um, we could talk a lot about that, but we won't. Um, so God's, but I would say that God's favor to the unredeemed, as real as it is, is not forever. And he is showing his kindness today as he restrains evil and as he restrains judgment. But as we saw in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, that actually he will not, the guilty will not go unpunished. Another aspect of God's common grace is that he restrains sin. And I don't know how much you spend time thinking about this, but 
Um, one of the examples in Scripture is in Genesis 11, 6, and I didn't put the text here, but it's really talking about where God actually confused the languages at Babel. That was going to be a very evil thing where the power of men was congregated, and really they were going to try to, to build that tower towards heaven, and God said, I'm not going to let this happen. That would be evil and restrained. And so he confused it, and in that way he separate, separated uh, men into to many different languages. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6, and 7 talks about the Antichrist. And he says, And you know who, what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And so this is an example where we live in a world where God is restraining the enemy from coming and beginning the march to the end. He's actually holding off on that. We see another example in Romans 1, which I think we're all familiar with, uh, particularly in Romans 1.28, and it said, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So actually there was a restraint, and, and what God did was he actually pulled that restraint back. And I don't know if you remember when I taught actually on Romans 1, and we talked about how we see uh, the steps of sin and the steps of degradation as it comes down and how God just removed his restraint there, gave them over. And also his patience is, is actually an extension of his graciousness. Genesis 3.15, and this is where we see the gospel. We actually see grace at the very beginning. It was from all the eternity, but our first glimpse of grace was and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And you shall, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This was the promise of how Christ may be down for a moment, but that Satan would, in the end, was going to be taken care of permanently. He'll, his final resting place will be in hell with all of his angels. Um, and then in 2 Peter 3, 9, God waits for many to repent and believe. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Another aspect is, is actually that, you know, unregenerate people, in other words, non-Christians, unbelievers, actually do good. They do good. But it's a qualified good. It's not good in the, in, in, when the scripture says there's no one good, no, not even one. It's talking about the good in the higher sense of good works that are done for the glory of God, works that are obedient to the word of God and motivated by faith and love for God. Those are the kind of things that God calls good, right? But yet, people across the world do good things. And that is simply the grace of God. Um, and in Luke 6.33, it says, If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So there is a goodness there. Now I'm going to, I'm going to uh, press through here the rest pretty quick. So communicable attribute. This is the part where, okay, God is gracious. So how does that gracious come through you and I? How is it communicable to you and I? Um, so let's think about it this way. Uh, one way to think about it is how, how you're gracious to others is the extent that you extend favor, kindness, blessing, mercy, forgiveness, love, gifts, etc. to others when they've done nothing to deserve them and in fact may have wronged you, hurt you, offended you, treated you badly, slandered you, rebelled against you and are actually deserving of some retribution 
for punishment. That is grace flowing through you. And how do we do that? And, and you've got the uh, scriptures here, but I want to get to this last point. So I'm, I'm just going to, one of the ways that we, we actually give grace to others in our words. And these are two powerful uh, passages here that our speech should always be with grace. Always be gracious. Now, every one of us would raise our hands and say our speech is not always gracious. I, I would imagine. But, but this is what God has called us to. Um, and he talks about giving grace to those who hear according to the need of the moment. We need to be at the ready to be grace givers, right? We need to be walking around full of the Spirit of God so that when we come across that person, that need of the moment, that our words give grace to that person. And really what that is is God's grace coming through us to someone else. The needs of others... Um, Really, 1 Peter 4.10 says that as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Some versions would say God's manifold grace, many colored, just beautiful grace. Um, Then in Matthew, I'll let you read through that verse, but it's the verse where we're really called to serve others and be kind to others. And then forgiveness, Colossians 3, 12 through 13. By the way, this is, this is great for any relationship, particularly for your marriage. Um, so, so as to those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And then in Hebrews 12, 14 through 15, we're warned you look at verse 15 there it says see to it that no one comes short of the grace of god don't withhold the grace of god to someone else because this is a strong warning about what happens when you withhold the grace of god and then just to loving your enemies so before we head into question time i just want to give you a few thoughts to consider aw tozer says this there are two ways to think about the grace of god one's to look at yourself see how sinful you were and say God's grace must be vast. It must be huge as space to forgive such a sinner as I am. And that's one way to think about grace, and it's a good way, and probably the most popular way. But there's another way to think about the grace of God. Think of it as the way God is, God being like God. And when God shows grace to a sinner, he isn't being dramatic. He's just acting like God. He'll never act any other way but like God. And that could apply to all the attributes we've covered. But this last bit is really something that is on my heart because I do think that really our view of the grace of God does really have to do with other views that we have. And and here's some of them that J.I. Packer brings to our attention. He says that many people, church people, don't actually believe in the grace of God. And that there are four crucial truths in the realm which the doctrine of grace presupposes. And if they're not acknowledged and felt in one's heart, clear faith in God's grace becomes impossible. Now, those are some pretty strong words. So let's see what he has to say. He says, first, is that the moral ill desert of man, the thought of themselves as creatures fallen from God's image, rebels against God's rule, guilty and unclean in God's sight, fit only for God's condemnation, never enters their heads. So think about that in terms of your own viewpoint. The second is the retribute justice of God. God is not true to himself unless he punishes sin. 
And unless one knows and feels the truth of this fact, that wrongdoers have no natural hope of anything from God but retributive judgment, no one can share the biblical faith and divine grace. This is a hard one. Because many may not believe that we actually deserve punishment. That actually, we didn't get ourselves into this mess. Why should I be responsible for being born? You know, and these are things that are hard issues. They're not easy issues. But we need to be true to the word of God. The spiritual impotence of man. Many have believed we can repair our relationship with God. And this is really many religions that try to lead us down to how do we actually get back to God. Um, To mend our relationship with God, regaining God's favor after having lost it, is beyond the power of any of us. We must see this and bow to it before we can share biblical faith in God's grace. I can't get there from here. And then this final one, the sovereign freedom of God. And Grady has, has kind of talked about this in some forms that, that, that God doesn't need anything. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. But it says the God of the Bible does not depend on his human creatures for his well-being, nor now that we have sinned is he bound to show us favor. We can only claim from him justice, and justice for us means condemnation. Only when it is seen that what decides each individual's destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins, and that this is a decision which God need not make in any single case, can one begin to grasp the biblical view of grace. My friends, if you come to the point and you think about it in your own life as a believer, if you're confident in your faith in Christ and that you belong to Him, you should ask yourself, why me? God, why would you save me? And you know what? The only thing you can answer is, God, your grace. But you won't be able to answer why. I don't know why God saved me. I'm really shocked that he would save me. And I don't know why, and I don't think I ever will until I see him face to face. And I don't know if I'll know then. But I'm so grateful. So as we go to discussion questions, um, number one is, is kind of goes back to what I hope to get out of time. Has tonight's look at God's attribute of graciousness caused you to think differently about God's grace? How so? And why? And then two, it's been said that we can't truly be gracious, and we're talking about this communicable attribute piece of things, give grace to others until we have truly realized the extent of God's graciousness, his saving grace to us personally. And I put this question here because I do, I do believe some people struggle with really uh, accepting God's grace. And sometimes if you don't, you can have a works mentality if you don't accept God's grace. And then sometimes it really it it makes you not willing to give grace to others. If you haven't freely received the grace of God, it's not going to freely come through you to others. Um, and so in light of that, how have you or have you experienced to receive the grace of God in your life? And then second, do you truly understand the grace of God that's come to you, is in you, and should flow through you? And, and three, how would you communicate this to someone else? And how does this change you? And thirdly, since grace is a communicable attribute, Are you gracious? That's a good question in the group. How do you demonstrate this attribute in your life to others? Give examples. And then here's the real honest question. If you struggle to extend grace to others, what may be some of the reasons why? 
and be specific. So let's go to our groups, and uh, I guess, uh, let's see, who, who, raise your hand if you're a normal group leader.